Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by the founder and director of the Amphibian Reptile Coalition uh, Conservancy, Mr. Jeff Holmes. Jeff, thanks for coming on to the show. Man, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, uh, Jeff, if you mind telling, telling me a little bit about yourself, how you first uh, got into reptiles and how you started the conservancy? Well, I, I, uh, I come at it from a field herper perspective. Uh, I'm, uh, my educational background is in philosophy. I figured if I could master critical thinking, I could do anything I wanted. And what I wanted to do was amphibian and reptile conservation. So uh, we identified the need for this organization back in late 2007, 2008. I had to step away for a couple of years and my colleagues uh, did a great job of getting it incorporated, making sure we got nonprofit status, going through all the legal uh, and registration type hoops. And then I came back and started pitching in. I became executive director until earlier this year. I'm getting a little bit long in the tooth. I'm I'm not young anymore. So uh, uh, our rock star uh, scientist, uh, Dr. J.J. Apodaca, uh, took over as executive director, and now I'm founding director, uh, which is a little easier on the hours, but mostly I just pitch in where my skills are needed. So, and I'm selfish about how I got here because uh, as a field herper, I don't like going out and seeing beautiful habitat with nothing there. And I don't like seeing going out and seeing beautiful habitat that's been mowed down, paved over, and turned into a strip mall. Yeah. Um, so what first got you into like herping and uh, reptiles in general? Uh, my dad uh, was a science teacher and uh, he brought home an owl when I was about three and it scared me. So the next time he brought home an animal, it was a king snake. And I said, I love that. And then the next animal he caught for us was, uh, I believe, a bullfrog. We were living in South Carolina. That's where I grew up. Brought home a bullfrog. And uh, loved that. So I've been in the woods since I was old enough to walk around. Uh, and that's my preferred mode of living, is out in the woods amongst the herbs. I've got... Uh, Ten and boards around my place in South Carolina. I can just walk a circuit, you know. Uh, and of course, this kind of work, uh, a lot of it's office work, but there are times when I still go out and help in the field, and that's the part I look forward to most. So, uh, the Amphibian Reptile Conservancy, um, as I mentioned before, is a nonprofit, but what does what's the goal and uh what does the conservancy do well we have uh 
a national strategy that we implement at the local level. And because I didn't come up with the strategy, I can brag on it without bra making it seem like I'm bragging on myself. It's visionary. It's bold. And uh, we deliver it with passion, great science, and a whole lot of energy. Uh, it's based on uh, a modeling exercise, geospatial modeling exercise, which just means map, but it's a map loaded with data. And uh, let me share my screen with you for a minute so you can see it. I know your listeners can't see it but maybe you can help describe it. These are called priority amphibian and reptile conservation areas. And what we do is we go around from state to state, get all of the in-state experts to bring in all their data. And we look at where we have the most, the rarest, the best chance of success, uh, and where we need to act soon, where we can act later, Things like that. Let me share this map with you real quick. It takes it a minute to load. Uh, and I'll just give you the broad strokes of it. You'll be able to describe to your to the listeners. By the way, thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, you'll be able to describe to the listeners what it looks like to you. But these are uh, these are maps compiled state by state with in-state experts uh, and, and and really good scientists in the region uh, of where the last best places to make a stand are, whether it's abundance, there's a lot of herbs, species richness, there's a lot of species, and especially rarity. There are a lot of rare species that need our help. So one sec. You're going to see yourself for just a minute here. Yeah, so the Conservancy is mostly just trying to identify and protect uh, vital areas for herpetofauna. Uh, yes, but beyond that, we go to these places okay. and start implementing ourselves on the ground. And I'll tell you about that process. Are you looking at yourself now? There's the map. Let me close the sidebar. And you can see uh, the green and yellow polygons are all where the local experts have said, this is where we have our best chance. This is where we have the most. Uh, this is where the habitat is recoverable. The states, we haven't finished these yet. The ones that are shaded in. Uh, we should have them within the next four years. Uh, Utah is currently in progress. We've already started that and should have it within a year or so. Mississippi is also in progress. Then we'll head up into the more northerly regions. So you get an idea of uh, yeah of what we do. And uh, I'll walk you through the process that we use once these are identified. Now, we identify them using uh, the uh, best science available. And let me stop sharing my screen.
Did my screen go away? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we identify polygons with the best science available. Then we actually go into these places and we get the best experts on that particular area, those particular species to get in there on the ground and, and, uh, and, and we're very proud of our ability to, uh, find really good people. And the first thing we do is get our bearings. Uh, we need an inventory. Uh, uh, we need searches, a lot of things, just a baseline to understand where things are. You would be amazed at how little exists in this age of digital maps and databases, how little information exists about where things actually are. And in some cases, some of these records may be 5, 10, 15, 25, 40 years old. Okay. So uh, we have to get in there. And is that population still there? Is that frog still breeding in that one pond? And if it is, then we look elsewhere within that polygon for similar suites of habitat and see if there might be some places that have been missed. So the first thing we do is take a full inventory of the habitats and the species that we can find, right? Right. And then we go in at zero in specifically on our rare species and do a, a research and investigation phase where we, why are they rare? We ask that question, why are they rare? And in some cases it's glaringly obvious the habitat is messed up. Uh, how do we salvage it? In other places, it's not. The habitat may be beautiful. But for some reason, the species aren't there. And then we have to look at things like uh, disease. And we have ways of detecting disease both in the environment and with the actual animals at hand. Uh, using environmental DNA or other genetic uh uh, sampling and it can be that or it can be low genetic diversity if you think about how sprawl and development and incompatible land uses affect the landscape yeah. we're seeing these animals getting the population's getting cut up into smaller and smaller blocks to the point where they can't interact outside of that small block. And then they start inbreeding and it spirals down really quickly hmm. when that happens. So we have to, there are ways to get it to spiral back up very quickly uh, by just doing some introduction of new genes, swapping, animals with another side yeah, yeah. so once we get that done then we got to see did it work and as far as the habitats go even perfect habitat sometimes needs help and uh 
we go in and restore bogs for bog turtles. We hack out the woody encroachment, let the grasses and sedges come back up, make sure that the muck is intact. If, the, if somebody's tried to drain the bog, we pull out the drainage or reverse the drainage efforts. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, in some cases, there may be excessive shrubs from uh, fire suppression in, in habitats that historically burned regularly. Yeah. So we go out, hack out those shrubs, release those grasses and sedges and flowering plants. And the, uh, that restores the primary production on the ground of the entire food web. And that way our gopher frogs have a place to eat. You know, they have plenty yeah, yeah. of the right kind of bugs. That way our pine snakes have plenty of rats, voles, and moles to eat. And uh, and in the bogs, uh, same deal, the browse, uh, 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 the, the food sources are restored when we do that in the bogs. Uh, we direct traffic away from cliff faces where there are green salamanders, uh, whatever it takes. We're up there hacking out uh, wetlands tiles in uh, high, some of the highest elevations in North Carolina where people have put in ceramic or, or concrete tiles to try to direct the water out of the wetlands. So uh, that's historic. That's nothing the current landowners want. So we we cut them up and take them out, and that's you know that's basically swinging a, a sledgehammer <laughs> and and a lot of elbow grease to get those out. And we're about to head out to New Mexico. We've done a lot of we restored a lot of wetlands out there. Well, we restored wetlands from Massachusetts to California, but specifically Chiricahua, leopard frog, uh, slender neck garter snakes, for example, yeah. find association with wetlands. And we're getting ready to go out there and, and uh, uh, put a full-time staff on the ground. It's all based on funding. We have to have donations to, to do all this and pay somebody to go out there and at least be able to feed themselves and uh, put gas in the car uh, to go out there and work. And it, it, one of the biggest problems we're facing in the Southwest are invasive grasses. There are grasses from arid areas of Africa and Asia that have gotten in there and they're taking over deserts. Now, if you think about the floor of the Sonoran Desert, Got a lot of cactus, a lot of other pulpy succulent plants that are widely spaced apart. Uh, so there's a lot of bare soil, caliche, desert concrete, we call it, uh, in between them. And even lightning strikes right there on the desert floor, right there on the desert floor. Desert doesn't carry fire. 
so they're not yeah. adapted to fire they're going to die if they burn grasses do carry fire and so there go all of the food sources for desert tortoises there go all of the hiding places for tiger rattlesnakes there go, you know it's it just becomes a completely different habitat and the herps either leave or die yeah, so yeah. get control of those grasses and it's widespread in the deserts getting control of those grasses is is a big job and we're putting people on the ground to help get that thing rolling so uh mentioned you uh do a lot of uh habitat restoration uh i guess what would be some of the larger uh habitats that you've uh, restored well, if you go through our well, you know, we've done over 50, 50 wetlands nationwide. It's a lot more than that now since we started in with the bog turtle. And we're about to do gopher frog wetlands uh, down on the coast of South Carolina as well. Uh, it's, sometimes it's removing woody encroachment where you have, like I said, you have shrubs or trees that have been allowed to get in there because something was missing so a lot of times we do that the biggest single project we did was a, a about a 70 acre lake up at about 70 uh, 7, feet in the mountains of north central arizona and this has been several years ago but it was a huge uh, and the air is thin up there, you know, <laughs> getting, you know, getting people that can work for more than two hours straight without passing out. It's hard. But we got our folks up in there and they did a great job. And we got a species count uh, from the landowner. Uh, and they calculated that 139 species of just vertebrate fauna not counting invertebrates or plants were were benefiting from fixing that one 70 acre lake it's another situation where they get in there and try to drain it and turn it into an ag field or something you know and we fix that that's great to hear that so it's kind of uh, surprising to hear that there's like wetlands in like New Mexico and Arizona because I guess like the common stereotype in people's minds of those is just high desert more or less. Yeah, but there are, especially as you get higher up in elevation or up on slopes that face just the right way, you know, so they catch yeah. the, the oreographic lift to get rain. There are spring heads. Uh, we've worked on spring heads. And uh, another big project that we, we're, a couple of big projects we've been doing back east, uh, up and down the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina and Virginia, identifying all the wetlands, sampling them using environmental DNA, eDNA, to see if they have bog turtles, and then ripping the tiles and filling the drainage ditches in every single one of them. So it's not one, it might be 40, but uh, 
And that's probably not that many, but we're fixing them all. Same thing on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee, the hellbender streams. Uh, we got people fencing cattle out of streams now, so we don't get all that algae bloom from the manure. Uh, we've got people reforesting stream sides. Uh, private landowners, just, yeah, we'll help. Uh, so uh, we're doing that up and down the Cumberland Plateau and have been for a couple of years. As a hellbender fan, I, that really does warm my heart a little bit here that well, that is a very intensive focal species for us. We have other things going on for the hellbender in North Carolina that are more scattered, you know, and not yeah. as clearly defined, opportunistic. If, if there's a stream in a park that has a hellbender and we have yeah. time, we go fix that. Yeah. Uh, uh, especially if we have the donations for it. You know, a lot of people like to donate to hellbender. A lot of people like to donate to tortoises and frogs, you know. So I'm glad you're a Hellbender fan. Yeah, they're probably one of the coolest animals in North America, largest amphibian in North America, close living relative of all the giant salamanders over in East Asia. Really? Yeah. Pretty cool it's animal. A, it's a very cool animal. We actually did uh, environmental DNA sampling in some of your streams down in the Wayne National okay, Park. Yeah. And uh, there are some there, but they are cut off uh, from other populations by various modifications, dams, too yeah. much siltation in one stretch of stream, things like that. Uh, so that's a head scratcher. But if it can be fixed, we're going to fix it. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned you do uh, environmental uh, DNA to find species in habitats. Uh, could you go over the process of how you do that? Sure. Uh, we can take soil samples or water samples in areas where we suspect there might be a high density. We use soil for a pilot project and for the Louisiana pine snake, probably the rarest snake in North America. Yeah. And also for the Jimez Mountain Salamander in northern New Mexico, uh, in our parkas. And it worked. We didn't find what we wanted to with the salamander. We found a lot of disease in the soil. Oh. And it wasn't the disease we expected. Uh, but it, it is one that can really hurt amphibians. Uh, so soil, you just take a soil sample from a suspect area, for example, around a downed log for a salamander, yeah. around uh, a pocket gopher burrow for Louisiana pine snake. And then you get into the aquatics. For wetlands, it's in general... 10 liters per acre taken at random points, okay, of water. You filter the water, run it through the filter, and the filters trap the genetic material. And then we send it to the lab in North Carolina, and voila, you get a, a yes or a no. And it's not a maybe. A yes is a yes. 
as long as all the equipment has been sanitized between each use. And of course, we sanitize the boots yeah. between each pod. We sanitize the latex gloves. Everything gets sanitized. Then when we take it back to process it at the field station, we sanitize the forceps. We sanitize the various uh, uh, water filtration mechanisms. Yeah. And go at it again so we don't get, you know, one population for showing up somewhere where we didn't actually find it. Yeah. So that's a very useful tool. It's harder with soil. You have to really have, a you know, a limited number of highly suspicious spots. Otherwise, you're just going around picking up dirt. Uh, with water, if you want to know if a gopher frog or a flatwood salamander or a bog turtle or a Chiricahua leopard frog or a western pond turtle or an American alligator, whatever you're looking for. If you want to know if it's been in there, it, basically two weeks. You got up to two weeks after it's been in there to detect it. Hmm. And we like with the with the amphibians, we like to go when the eggs hatch. And there's tadpoles, larvae, uh, swimming around everywhere. Yeah, that's a that's a very definitive positive hit if they're in there. <laughs> if you don't get a hit, uh, then you gotta start rethinking how to deal with that bond, maybe reintroduction. So you mentioned in New Mexico, you found uh, some sort of uh, amphibian diseases, not not the one you were expecting, but uh, was that a chytrid fungus? And it was, it was a chytrid fungus, and we were expecting some. I think it was chytrid, and we were expecting ranavirus. I'd have to ask our, we'd have to ask JJ. He's also our genetics expert, uh, specifically what that was. Uh, but it was pervasive. And there is some suspicion that it may be spread by invasive earthworms. Really? Yeah. So, uh, but we don't, we, I don't think we definitively define that yet, but the, the purpose of the study was to design artificial cover which would be emulating rotten logs on forested mountainsides above the desert floor uh, around the, the basin there and, and the uh, Emmanuel Mountains themselves. And now we find we've got to design you know, an artificial log is fairly easy to do. They've had a lot of catastrophic wildfire out there, okay. uh, which, you know, is really damaging as opposed to a prescribed fire, which would be yeah. uh, sensitive to uh, leaving some coarse woody debris on the ground. So a lot of the wood is burned up. And we want a moist, you know, sawdust bark uh rolled together or packaged together in some way now we've got to figure out how to keep diseases out of it too. Hmm. 
Yeah, so uh, from what I heard, Kitchard fungus, especially on the Western U.S., has really uh, wrecked uh, local amphibian populations really hard. We think it's hitting uh, California red-legged frog, California yellow-legged frog, in addition to habitat degradation, alteration, or destruction. Uh, it's, you know, that's one more thing we don't need. Uh, right. And what, it's probably present with, like I said, Chiricara leopard frog, California red-legged frog, uh, California yellow-legged frog, larch mountain salamander up in Oregon, uh, and uh, some cool endemics out on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. And some of these pathogens can jump also to aquatic turtles or fish or anything else that's kind of moist so we may that may vector in we know a lot of them vector in through fish hatcheries they get established in a fish hatchery and then you go out and restock a creek somewhere or a, or a lake and then all of a sudden you've got the disease in the system i love to fish but i don't love to fish that much <laughs> yeah yeah it really sucks to hear that those uh pathogens can leap species all the way to turtles and fish as well it just makes them that much harder to get rid of as only yeah yeah so there are lots of vectors out there maybe earthworms uh things like that who knows slugs snails we just don't have a full picture of it now so we're scrambling to get that full picture and some pathogens only affect certain species and some of them do jump species so uh i'm not an expert on that area of the you know uh microbiology of it yeah. uh, i'm a habitat guy myself but that's that's my best interpretation of of what JJ would say if he was sitting here. So, right. so uh, you mentioned a little bit ago that hellbenders were a very uh, vocal species for uh, the conservancy. What would be some other, uh, I guess, high priority or focal uh, species that you target? We're working directly with habitats and uh, populations. Habitat restoration, population recovery whichever is needed and how you mix and match it, right? Yeah. We're working directly with hellbenders, green salamanders, bog turtles, uh, done a little with the western pond turtle, a little with Chiricahua leopard frog, about to do more, uh, about to do more with slender neck garter snake and northern Mexican garter snake. We have, uh, we do, a, we've done a tremendous amount with eastern diamondback rattlesnakes in the deep south. Uh, Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, pine snakes, uh, gopher frogs, uh, frosted flatwood salamanders. Uh, we're really turning up the heat on ornate chorus frogs, king snakes. You know, common king snakes aren't common hmm. anymore. No, I've seen, you know, in the last 20 years, I've seen them just fall off a cliff in some areas, populations. Uh, uh spotted turtles work a lot with the spotted turtle beautiful turtles but 
it with them it comes down to a lot of law enforcement issues uh there's still a black market out there despite the fact that you go buy a legally captive bred designer whatever you want yeah there's still some people clinging to that black market so uh we have eyes and ears everywhere for that as well work closely coordinate closely with law enforcement in some areas so uh you mentioned you've seen king snake populations kind of drop off the charts uh what would be some of the factors that are negatively affecting common king snake populations well we think it's probably a perfect storm of multiple factors uh we think that well some of them have shown respiratory diseases and I don't know where that stands right now. I haven't caught up on that particular thread of uh, thrust of the investigation. Uh, but non-native invasive red fire ants in the, in the South eat everything. They will kill and eat a small snake in a minute. You know, king snakes make most of their living off other snakes. So you start seeing earth snakes, worm snakes, ring neck snakes, things like that starting just, even if you depress them just a little bit, then that has a resounding effect throughout the food web and king snakes wind up getting the raw end of it. We're also seeing, you know, there's some speculation that, uh, and maybe some research, that other prey items for king snakes such as uh cotton rats moles lizards are also being impacted by fire ants then you add in the habitat destruction degradation or fragmentation then you add in any black market activity that's going on which isn't much uh for that particular species i hope yeah and you keep you keep adding in all these factors the respiratory disease everything and just boom in 20 years they've gone from the most abundant species in some areas to uh virtually undetectable in those same areas over Hmm. large areas sometimes in perfect habitat So uh, you mentioned fire ants are just an incredibly destructive force for uh, native food webs. Uh, what are some other species that you work with that have been negatively impacted by fire ants? All of them. <laughs> yeah, tracks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at eastern diamondback rattlesnake. Well, they're going to start out eating cotton rats. They'll get a rabbit once they get bigger if they can. Uh, mice and things like that. But, you know. If fire ants find a nest of pinkies, they're going to eat them all. Yeah. You know, we've got road mortality on top of that. Uh, if you look at uh, a turtle nest or a gopher tortoise nest, fire ants can't get through that egg in most cases. But when it hatches, Boom, they're on it. Southern hognose snakes. 
the one the one thing that's saving southern hognose snakes and pine snakes right now from more direct predation or predation of their prey uh by fire ants is that they tend to inhabit sandy areas where the sands are so loose the fire ants don't occur in big densities that their densities are lower because they can't get their their holes their tunnels yeah the whole network underground network to hold together just keeps collapsing that's one saving grace for some of them but it's affecting i would say uh all non all small mammals ground nesting birds and herctofauna to some extent especially with the frogs you're looking at frogs uh that breed in wetlands but spend the rest of the year somewhere else you know like gopher frogs or, or uh, certain species of leopard frogs uh ornate chorus frogs uh get out in the grasslands well you could be directly eaten uh or something that you like to eat could be eaten uh salamanders oh man a salamander we have we have no adaptation to fire ants that eat everything you know yeah they've only been here 50 years 70 years so nobody's adapted to that and it, there are places where a salamander they don't move much anyway but there are places where they couldn't crawl 20 feet successfully because in that 20 feet there are seven fire ant mounds that are within the feeding radius of those fire ants so that's a big one yeah wow so uh kind of less uh somber tone but uh what are some things uh, people can do at home, just average day people at home can do to help preserve amphibians and reptiles? Well, first thing to do is donate to ARC. I mean, we, we live off donations. And, you know, even if it's only $5, it all counts. Of course, you know, there are some people I'm sure that could give $500,000. i would like to see more of those. Yeah. Uh, after that to pay the bills for, you know, a couple of years in a park. Uh, but anything you can give helps. And uh, also, the average homeowner with a backyard, there are plenty of resources out there to naturalize your backyard. Uh, my house here in Nashville is right outside downtown, and I've got an eighth of an acre. But I got a compost pile, and I've got a uh, uh, a shrub garden using native shrubs and ferns out back with a native music forest overstory tree composition and uh if i blow leaves i only blow them onto the compost pile i don't bag them up and haul them off uh and we managed to hang on to garter snakes and uh tornado took our slimy salamanders when it cleared the canopy out completely hmm. uh 25 years ago uh but we do have uh skinks ground skinks and five line skinks and garter snakes in abundance and i only have to go 
500 meters that way to a, a wetland preserve, urban wetland preserve where I can get black king snakes, uh, gray rat snakes, water snakes, racers, green snakes galore. And uh, we don't have fire ants right here in Nashville proper. So all that stuff still really happening. All right. Uh, so you mentioned you did some work with uh, Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes. Uh, Want to go a little detail about uh, what all that entailed? What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, I missed you. So you mentioned oh. you did some work with uh, Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes in the past. Uh, what was uh, that like? Uh, it's ongoing. We've been at it on that species since 2013 uh, in our early, early years. Uh, the population that we're working with used to be four populations as recently as five years before we started. Now only one of them is detectable. Because hmm. the first thing we did was look at records. Where are they? And we went to all those places and didn't find them except in one area. And guess what? They're inbred. Uh, we've got them all crammed into less than 15,000 acres. Of habitat and it's protected habitat but uh it's surrounded by sprawl so that's been a problem there uh but we know we know where they we know what they eat, we know where they sleep uh we know what temperature they like their body at when they're basking we know what temperature they like the body at when they're feeding we know what temperature they like their body at at uh when hibernating we know uh when they move sometimes why they move uh we're aware of we know them all all on a first name basis just about and each one has different preferences but the hab we know what the habitat looks like and it's not one single habitat it's a matrix of habitats interconnected they make a lot of them, you know, everybody says, well, they're a pine grassland snake. They're in the longleaf ecosystem, which is basically a prairie with some trees on it, you know? Yeah. Uh, where there's plenty of food for the small furry things they eat. They go into shrub bogs, uh, pocosins, impenetrable without a machete or a flamethrower for humans and get rabbits uh the big ones do huh. so uh we know what types of habitats they use in that part of their range and we know what types of habitats based on literature they use in other parts of the range uh so we've been able we're making adjustments on the fly uh simultaneously working on uh there needs to be an expansion of the habitat and that's ongoing there needs to be uh, a genetic rescue that's in the works. They, there needs to be some very clear monitoring of reproductive success. Uh, we do that every single year. We are all over the place in September when uh, mamas give birth. 
we know who's bred with who, and we find them coupled up cordon as early as Jan uh, July. And by, you know, mid-September, they've already bred. And the gestation period is about a year. And we know they, they're not going, they're not breeding as often as we would like. Hmm. The quantity just goes down as genetic diversity starts to go down. Yeah. So they're not, they're not just spewing out the babies like we'd like. And that's a majestic creature. That yeah. is a true, truly awe-inspiring symbol of the American outdoor experience. And if we lose them, not only do we lose that fabric and the delicate tapestry of our environment, our ecosystems, but we lose something that is truly an honor to witness. Yeah, they truly are one of the most uh, remarkable species we have. They really are. And I've been working with them for almost 30 years now. And I'll still be working with them when I job dead. So, so um, after all this uh, bad news, is there any uh, good news for uh, reptile and amphibian uh, conservation recently? Yeah, stuff we're doing. Yeah, those populations we're fixing them. Ran ran in similar obstacles uh, with gopher frogs. Guess what? We're head starting them. We're uh, we're restoring their ponds to not to just better, but to almost perfect. Uh, with bog turtles, you know, we're building it, and sometimes they come. If they don't, we'll we'll put them back. Hmm. Uh, so we are kicking butt and taking names. That is the good news. Is it is that we'll we'll fight till we bleed. To keep these animals alive there's no shortage of passion and no shortage of knowledge within uh arc in fact i'm probably the least knowledgeable we have so many smart people in this organization oh it certainly is a great news to hear yeah we're getting it done it's just money 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 <laughs> you know gotta put gas in the car gotta put food on the table Got to make sure our field boots don't have holes in them. You know, our waders don't leak. Uh, and we don't live richly. We do. We take as little as we can to, to make it work. Yeah. A lot of Motel 6s. Oh, that would be a luxury. I'm going to spend the month of March in a bunkhouse. Uh shed <laughs> uh at one of our study sites it's very it's very nice actually it's just you know yeah it's way out there <laughs> if i get sick they ain't gonna be able to find me oh, no. <laughs> yeah. so uh low overhead everything all the passion goes into the work all the money goes into the work and we're gonna we are making a stand that certainly is great news to hear. So, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a blast. Uh, I enjoyed being here. Uh, uh, really look forward to listening to more. I, uh, uh, 
listened to a little bit of Kevin Messenger. Uh, uh, known him since he was, you know, an undergrad, and yeah. watched him grow up. I said, "That's a rock star." Uh, yeah. You know, when he was twenty-one, I said, "He's going to be a rock star." And uh, some of his buddies, uh, uh, know several of the people that you've had. So. Yeah. yeah, like I said, thanks for coming on, and for the folks at home. Uh, make sure to donate to the Amphibian Reptile Conservancy. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, and you really are uh, committing to a good cause. You definitely are. We will see that your money is well spent. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, Jake. Thanks.